some people are made for the nine to five, which is great. Like, yeah, everyone, everyone has a place and everyone, you know, has their priorities. But uh, that's one of the hardest things is you really got to commit a lot of time to it. And I always tell them you do two hours more a day compared to your buddy. Within a week, you've already worked 10 more hours. You compound that within a month, that's 40 more hours. You compound that again, at the end of the year, you're, yeah, you've worked a month or two months longer. Compound that by four or five years, you now have another year of experience. And you know, it's a, just a compound effect. And uh, a lot of people aren't willing to commit to it. I think they say they are, but they don't, they, you know, you don't really ever see it. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. All right. I am pumped to have one of my really good friends and the owner of Davidson Bogle, Edward Bogle, on the show with me today. Edward and I have been working together in real estate for the last three years, and he seriously is someone that has taught me so much. I learn a ton every time I chat with him. He is a broker that has specifically focused on land, but he knows far beyond that. Um, But for those listening, In all real estate transactions, things start with the piece of land that you've chosen, whether um, that is farm and ranch land, whether that's urban land, industrial land, it really all starts with land. Um, So I'm pumped to have you on the show and thanks for joining me. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Um, Just to kind of give uh, a little bit of a start, can you kind of give a little bit of your background and um, how it led to Davidson and Bogle? Absolutely, so um, my partner and I were both born and raised in Dallas. We met each other really probably in kindergarten, then became really good friends about fourth grade. Uh, running buddies all the way through life. We, he went to SMU, went to A&M. We both came back, got into the industry in about 2009. Of course, a great time to to, <laughs> to jump off. When everybody was buying land. Oh, everyone was buying everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and after about two years, we started working on a deal together, actually, in Preston Center. And we saw the synergies. We'd always talked about potentially working together, but there's a lot of a lot of fear of working with one of your really good friends. Um, the good thing about David and I were, were the yin and yang, and we knew we knew something would work and work well. So uh, at that point, I went over to Venture Commercial. But before that, I was with uh, John Altshuler, Altshuler Company, doing landlord tenant rep work on the office side. But uh, over at Venture, I'll, we decided just to go focus on on land yep. uh, acquisition, disposition. Venture had has a very strong retail backbone, so of course, a lot of what we were doing was trying to get in front of you know, right in front of the, the growth in front of the development just right. for the retail side. But that quickly evolved into single family master plan communities to multifamily land, to medical land, to office land, to just kind of any and all land. Um, so we've got some stuff we've worked on that, you know, let's call it the, the next edge. And then we have, we've worked between that next edge and, and current development. And uh, our 90% or 98% of our clients are either developers or the landowners. Right. So was making that decision because when you usually think of like um real estate businesses you're thinking of like building the buildings and and owning the actual stuff above the land there's not a lot of companies that have been dedicated to land was that just something that y'all both kind of came to agreement on is like there's a huge niche in the market for us to just focus on land yes uh so david's dad was a is a still is very active large master plan community land broker i mean in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, been one of the larger land brokers here in North Texas with you know a handful of others. Um, my dad was always on the land development side. I was doing single family, you know, lot developments really throughout Texas. So strangely, we both had a land upbringing. It's not that you necessarily grow up saying I want to do what my dad's doing, but right. there end up being some synergies later in life and uh, relationships and lingo and and the rest. But as we 
kind of went off on this land venture, we, we really started seeing that it was a, a very viable business model, that uh, there was a very large gap and just on the, on the age side of existing land, pure land brokers and really no one else doing it. So, yeah, there's about a 30, 40 year gap between between the two. And uh, we saw that as another great advantage, you know, for us where we don't have to be, especially when we started, we didn't have to be doing all the biggest deals. Yeah, We just wanted to do the, the second biggest deals. Yeah. And the, the ones that everyone else is overlooking because it's not worth their time. It's a three, four, five million dollar deal. We're like, well, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just kind of grew and grew, grew from there and you know, just beating the street and, you know, just kind of. That's where it is. And to put that in perspective, uh, starting with the three, four, five million dollar deals, um, you're now north of six hundred million dollars of deals you've done, and you have parlayed that nicely. You mentioned Preston Center. Um, I guess my question is: Is there like was there a distinct moment that y'all were both like, "All right, we're doing it. Here's the game plan. Here's the date." Yeah, I'd say probably really that Preston Center deal was. Um, was one of those we saw we worked well together we um, what was it can you talk about yeah so, yeah uh Altshuler and i obviously on the office side Altshuler is very he's very design oriented very historic uh oriented as well i mean he's a fantastic broker but also just as a um he, he, he loves real estate he loves the history behind it he loves the locations he loves the design he, he travels to go see buildings i mean it's very cool so that inspired a lot in me as well. And then David, he, David was just really good at putting parties together. And he, right. he heard that uh, the Cruz Family Trust was looking at doing, maybe adding an office component. They weren't really sure how to do it because biggest, most important thing to them was to maintain their retail presence. Right. Um, 70% or something, I might be wrong on the yeah. percentage, but of the customer base is our females. And so right. they wanted, design was very, very important in how it came across. I didn't want a big masculine building being like retail built around this office. It was the retail is here and the office complements and supplements, uh, you know, what's here. So yep. and just, just from that, we, we saw that we probably had more to work on. Yeah. Because office is, a, is an interesting game. Yep. And uh, there aren't, there are a lot of guys that are really good at it, but you either got to be in it or you have no idea about how it works. Right. Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of fun to see it all come together. And then, so y'all are like working on it and then you're at dinner one night and you're like, dude, let's start a business. Or maybe he's like, dude, let's start a business. Essentially yeah. a couple of drinks in. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank God for drinks. So then <laughs> how long from that moment until you pulled the trigger? Was it like a year, a month, a yeah, less week? Than, less than a year. I mean, yeah. A couple Probably a couple months. That's awesome. Yep. So you guys both make the leap into starting the business. What was like the first year of, of business like? Was it just the two of y'all? Did you have an office? Yeah. So the first year we started our company, Davidson and Bogle. Um, we started about five years ago now. And we just, yeah, we kind of made the leap. It wasn't that we wanted to leave where we previously were. It just kind of became that time to to go try something different. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just one of those weird times and all your mentors told us, Hey, why haven't you guys already done this? We asked them, what should we do? We're at this point in our careers, we're doing well. We've got a lot of listings, but there's more we want to be doing to this. Right. And they said, you guys should start your own company. Yeah. So when your biggest mentors tell you, you should start your company, you, you tend to listen yeah. <laughs> or you should listen. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, literally within a week, we're out the door and, you know, one of our mentors is Mr. Pro with, with uh, the Hillwood and you know, he just bought, he and his family just bought a building across from their new campus. So yeah, you guys go check it out. Let me know if there's a space in there that you like, you know, happy to help where we can. And um, we went up there, we looked out the window and said, this is, this is awesome. We called him and said, all right, we're, we're moving in. I don't think he understood. We we're literally we're <laughs> starting to move in. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the office manager, the, uh, property manager came in and was like, who are you guys? Uh -huh. <laughs> like, well, we're moving in. Like, we're Davidson Bogle, yeah, baby. Yeah. He's like, you have insurance? Like, what's that? <laughs> like, dental insurance? Yeah. <laughs> that paints a really good picture because I think most people that think that when you start a business, like you have buttoned up every little thing. And the truth is you kind of, uh, what is it? Uh, fire aim ready yes. uh, rather than ready aim fire. Um, yep. And we're, you know, I'm pretty systematic in the way I do stuff. And 
starting a company, you really don't know what you're getting into, right. which is part of the excitement. It's part of the, called the fear of it, but you look around and, and I learned a lot on the office side. You go walk into all these buildings. It's just, it's not just one tenant in there. There are hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of businesses. Right. And that many people can go do it. Well, I, you know, I bet we can figure it out as well. So five years ago, um, you start, how long, uh, until y'all hired like your first couple people? Or was it just the two of y'all when you started? Uh, it was the two of us, and uh, we brought Jeff Young, who we'd, who we'd hired while we were at Venture. Okay. Um, he came over with us. Was, I'm, he's like, I'm coming with you guys wherever <laughs> you go. So um, it was the three of us, and then we quickly hired an office manager slash receptionist. That didn't go so well. Uh, ended up having some issues there, but yeah. Yeah, that's part of the growth and part yeah. of the story. And then uh, we hired Danny Eisenberg, and she was – you know, been phenomenal. She really helped us get a lot of things straight, keep it straight. I mean, she was wearing every hat in the world that she could think of wearing. And then slowly but surely, you know, within a year, I think we're up to nine. And uh, then we hit and had to grow. We grew out of our space, moved, you know, built out some space next door. And about a year after that, we were at 19. And so we built out more space. And that's the current space we're in now. And you're probably growing even more. We're looking at some more space. <laughs> yeah, I think you made a really good point on it's it's really easy to think about the business as the people that you might see every day out in the market, but the people that are at home base making stuff happen are really what makes the world go round. Um, I know you've even been talking about Danny over the years, and there's a lot of people here that I feel like you and I can go get a lot of stuff started, but there has got to be someone to get it all across the goal line. Yes. Keep you organized, keep, keep the wheels on. Um, yeah. and a lot of there's the, the day to day that you don't ever really see or think of until you're in it. Yep. If, uh, somebody, whether they're out of college or maybe, you know, getting out of one industry into the other was thinking about becoming a broker, even specifically a land broker, like what are some things that you would tell them, uh, to be thinking about uh get your license first uh that's one big thing that i always find real interesting is you know, people come in and say i, I, I know i want to do real estate i want to be in real estate you know, i really want to be a broker i'm of course i ask them why and it's a not necessarily the most lavish lifestyle it's a lot of grind and you know you eat what you kill and yeah um it's not not made for everybody but uh, the biggest thing is get your license because then it shows you got some skin in the game. Yep. Uh, it shows that you truly do have an interest. You're, you know, it costs you a thousand bucks or something, but yeah, you know, it's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, and especially coming out of college, it's like it's really showing you're committed to getting something done. Yep. If they're coming from another industry, and maybe how do I frame the question is, how is it something that you learn on the job or? are there certain ways that people could tell, like there's a lot of people that say they want to be in it and then they kind of get in it and they're like, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> Real estate's a sexy word until you're in it. Exactly. Um, just like development. <laughs> yeah. Like how do you train these, these young neophytes that come and, and see you? Trial by fire. Yeah. Lots so, of trial by fire. And, and the way I always saw it when I was getting out of school was I'd say part of our reputation, you know, David and I, especially when we were younger and even today, but just the amount of work that we were committed to. Yep. And it was not just 12 hour days. There's easy 14, 16 hour days on a very consistent basis. Yep. Um, you give up a lot, but what you're really giving up is probably just, you know, some drinks at the bar of happy hour that everyone else is on the nine to five. Well, I, I'd, I'd still am lost if I leave the office before six or six thirty. Yep. I don't know what to do with that time. It's just never been a, part of my day yeah. uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm confused, but you know, people, some people are made for the nine to five, which is great. Like yep. you know, everyone, everyone has a place and everyone, you know, has their priorities, but uh, that's one of the hardest things is you really got to commit a lot of time to, it. I always tell them you do two hours more a day compared to your buddy within a week, you've already worked 10 more hours. Yep. You compound that within a month, that's 40 more hours. Yep. You compound that again at the end of the year, you're, You've well, worked, hey. yeah, you've worked a month or two months longer. Compound that by four or five years, you now have another year of experience. Yep. And, and it's a, just a compound effect. And uh, a lot of people aren't willing to commit to it. I think they say they are, but they don't 
that you know you don't really ever see it. And the hardest part is is making sure that they're working on the right things during Correct. those hours because when you are eating what you kill, you are working extra hard. Cause, and and sometimes it can feel like you're just walking out into the middle of nowhere and you don't know if you're working on something that's going to turn. You might think I'm the best deal in the world and mm-hmm. work for two months straight on it. <laughs> yeah. And to come to the end and it doesn't work out and you put two, now you can look at the positives of there's a huge learning experience, but I'm not a broker, but I still live in that same world where when we're working on deals, you might be committing six months of your life to something for sure. And you are really hoping. And I think the the edge is when you start realizing really quick when to stop working on something and start working on something else. You, you have to, you, you learn it though with a little time. Yep. I mean, it just, we call it running, running down rabbit holes and you got to chase plenty of rabbits and you got to go down plenty of holes. And the, the trick is you got to have a string attached to your toe that can pull you right back uh, in case you've gotten too far down. Yep. Um, and, you know, D- David and I, we, we talk about that quite often. Yep. You know, if I feel like I'm about to run down the rabbit hole, tell them, hey, I'm, I'm going down. Yeah. Let me know if you see me doing anything that, you know, just looks stupid uh, to keep me in check and vice versa. I won't mention a deal, but I've been chasing a rabbit hole for about four or five years now um, that I'm hoping will pan out. Um, sometimes you get so deep in, you just got to keep going. You're pot committed now. I know, man. I'm pot committed. My heart's in it. Um, okay. Well, to I'm not going to, I'm not brown nosing. I'm not bragging on, on Edward, but Edward, although the word is broker. Edward is one of the most thoughtful thinkers about real estate that I've ever come across. I think it's why we get along really well. Edward and I will often get on these random calls and an hour and a half later, we've kind of talked through how he's seeing something or how I'm seeing something or how we could see something come together. Um, And I think one of the coolest parts about being a broker is you don't just get to see the buyer or just the seller. You get to see how everything is working. And so you see why things are successful, why things screw up, why the best do what they do. And the cool thing about real estate is you could have 10 of the best companies in the world look at one piece of land and see 10 totally different ways to make it successful. So I'm going to dive in a little bit on land. First question, just being something more of what are the most important aspects for buyers and sellers to think about when transacting? Um, You know, being creative, I think is always a, a leg up. You can't always just see it as, you know, what's on the flyer, what's on this. And, you know, we oftentimes challenge ourselves as well on this. Go back through our, our existing portfolio. What do we have? What am I not thinking of? And oftentimes we'll go to the, the zoning ordinance yeah. for that and say, all right, here are all the uses we can do here. Yep. Oh, my gosh, I haven't even thought about this one. Yep. Um, it's worse when you get a call from somebody else that representing someone you do a lot of work with. And you're like, man, I completely overlooked that. Yeah. Um, but for you know, buyers and sellers, the, the idea is, at the end of the day, if you're you know, real sellers and real buyers, you, you got to go into it knowing you're looking for a partnership. Yep. And then I use the word partnership loosely, but also very seriously. Yeah. Because when when you sign that contract, you're off to the races. One group's spending money, the other group's got to sit back. Yep. And yeah, at that point, everyone's agreed to the terms. So now you need to work together to get it over, you know, get it over the goal line. Yep. And uh, and it's about management of expectations is a big part, I think, really in any business. So lots of communication uh, that, that goes a very, very long way, you know, for, for a buyer or for a seller. Um, if things pop up, look, we all get it. Yep. Things do pop up, but let's just not, let's not hide it and let the other guy find it and you go, oops, yeah, sorry, I meant to tell you that. Yep. Uh, None of it's unfixable. For sure. It really isn't. I mean, it's it's keeping communication going and momentum uh, going. If one of the, and we can talk about different types of transactions, but some of the ones that um, I know that you've worked on, the, you know, some of the most over the last couple of years have been large, um, maybe call it ranch land or farmland in North Dallas, where Dallas is growing. Correct. you know, for anybody not from DFW, Frisco 10 years ago was like a giant ranch. And now it's one of the fastest growing cities in America. If somebody brings you like, hey, Edward, here's this piece of land. What's kind of your process for that next communication with them of like, this is what I think about it. And this is what I think I can do. Is there like a process you kind of go through? Yeah, it's, it really depends on the on the 
on the land. I got construction going on behind me. I know. <laughs> it's a it's a real estate podcast, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it really depends on on the land tract is kind of the, the approach we would take. So um, the first thing we always do, we always dive into right, what's existing zoning, what's existing utility situation. You know, all, all pretty simple stuff that you know requires a meeting with the city or even just a, a quick phone call with the city. And, and then from there, we start formulate our who is the right buyer. And once again, depending on the on the tract, sometimes we'll advise. You know, hey, do you have a survey? Okay, you don't you don't have one, or you have one, but you know it's been in the shed for for 40 years. Well, we we noticed that there've been four or five new easements. Like our recommendation, spend a little bit of money. It sucks. Yeah, no yeah. one no one likes spending money. Um, and we're we're good at trying to advise when to and when not to. Uh, it, just go get a new survey. Always, that's a big important thing because no matter what, whatever buyer comes in, if you don't have a new updated survey, gonna get one. they're going to say, I, I need at least 30 days. And some will say, I need 60 days to get a survey. And until I have that, I can't pull my title commitment. And until I have that, I can't start doing layouts and really seeing what I can put on here. So it really just, it delays, it really delays the, the entire transaction. And and it's unfortunate because we run across a lot of sellers, you know, when we're representing a buyer that they don't have one and they want you to close, of course, in 30 days. Yeah. You're like, well, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Um, it's well, usually nine to 12 months. Is there yeah, a- very, very, I'd say uh, very typical deals, at least nine months, you know, probably nine to 14 months. And wow. uh, honestly, that like these, the cities have, you know, not, I'm not saying they've gotten more complicated. It's just they're overwhelmed. They got a lot going on. All your architects have a lot going on. Engineers have a lot going on. The surveyors have a lot going on. Developers have a lot going on. And it's just add all everyone's schedules and conflicts of schedules of getting on this on the same page. And that just creates time. Yep. And uh, fortunately, that's the, the, the byproduct of everyone being busy. We're all blessed to be busy. Yep. But it, that, that is a byproduct that some people really forget about. Yep. But uh, yeah, so yeah, 12, 12 months is very easy. Nine months is pretty typical and then and you're and it's not long nine long months you feel like you're racing oh, you're, to get to nine months because mm-hmm. I mean, it's a constant hurry up and wait hurry up and wait hurry yeah. up and wait you can reach out to the city and you can promise the seller you're going to do something within 90 days and then look the city can't see until day 98 yeah and that's that's out of your control and on these much bigger tracks i mean something even that i've learned and we've talked about is back to your point like as a seller if we're selling something we the more that we can have prepared for the buyer oftentimes the more you can get in price oh for sure because they know what they're bidding on correct whereas if you go into these transactions where it's like all right we're going to put a contract on it subject to these 15 things (laughs) you are almost guaranteed you're not coming out with the same contract once everything has been discovered and you can burn 90 days right there just doing something that sellers can do which that costs you more money on carry and ref and all the rest i mean it's it's real dollars it's super real dollars and you know the nine month thing is we're at a point now where nine months feels like if we can get deals done in nine months it is a blessing i mean we've had some go 16 17 18 months and then you get so far into the deal that you're like well what am i going to do cancel this contract and go start another 18 month no i might as well just extend another 30 days well and that's where the communication with the seller is really key you yep. know when you're doing that you let them know where, where you are what you're running into because you're not going to be the only guy that runs into it right if you are selling um a big piece of real estate or something with a, an institutional developer not even an institutional developer a developer um or your buyer is an institution of some sort as a seller once the contract's done and even before it's done, you really need to be start thinking about your buyers, your partner, your goal is to get it sold and their goal is to get it bought. And it does not work when, you know, you're both acting as if you're not kind of one. Yep. Um, and it's look, it's tough. It's emotional. You see, you see it a lot too though. <laughs> okay. Well then my next question, what are the main reasons deals fall apart? Probably miscommunication or, uh, you know, poor management of either expectations on the buyer or seller side. And unfortunately, sometimes it could be on the broker side. They, they didn't do their homework. 
uh, on who the buyer is, where's the equity coming from, you know, what are they really capable of doing? Um, and it can also be on the contractual side, you know, the way you set up contracts. Like we like to, you know, I like to get the buyers the time that they need, you know, within a reasonable time frame. Right. But there are ways to set up contracts that you have these called checkpoints yep. along the way to make sure they are being diligent with their time. Right. And it's not just wasting your time. And at any point in time, if they're not, then they're, they're potentially liable for the money that they've got up. Yep. Um, so that that's a, that's a big thing. It's, you know, you, everyone needs a little, a little schedule and everyone needs to be pushed to stay on schedule. And it's an easy way for everyone just to have their own checklist. DFW is full of land. If you were to watch like a Google earth map, you can see how it's expanding rapidly. Mm-hmm. Do you see things continuing to expand or do you think, do you see a trend of things contracting and we're going to start seeing a lot more turnover of urban sites that have more density attached to them? I think you're going to see both. Uh, we've, the great thing about DFW, we've got the physical, on the physical location, of course, around the nation is, is you know, you can't beat it. Yep. Um, but we're also at the southern edge of the Great Plains you know, and call, call it the Cross Timbers. We've got the Cross Timbers and the Great Plains really where we sit so we've got really good what does that mean being at the southern edge of the great plains so the great plains you know yeah. run all the way kansas all the way down like yeah. we're part of that that belt okay. and so the way i see it it's good flat land i mean on a relative basis yes you have some topography in certain areas but really at the the lateral of downtown fort worth and downtown dallas and then south and east you start to see more topo right um but everything kind of going north it just it gets flatter yeah and uh, in, in a relative sense i've never thought about it yeah though. and so it's just it's cheaper to grow out yep. than it is to come back in uh this being said we also have a lot of great positive positive qualities of our growth and for that that's a lifestyles and convenience so you're going to see the continued you know backfill infill uh, as well because your population is growing really really fast as actually a uli uh, deal yesterday morning and just on the trajectory everyone thinks forever building multifamily but you look at the numbers by 2030 we're going to be short if we're at the same growth rate and level uh, we'll be short over like 160,000 units wow yeah and that's just that's 10 years away and that's really not yep that's not far um so i'm 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 bullish on both yeah. which is why we have our you know our urban team and We've got our suburban teams. Do suburban developers look at things differently than urban developers? Yes. Yeah. Very. What are some like big? Well, for instance, over two bucks a foot or something like that gets yeah. real expensive. If you're suburban. <laughs> Correct. But it also comes down to product. What are you delivering at the end of the day? And, you know, you just, it's all simple math. It's uh, all how many units can you get to the acre, correct. basically. And what can you sell them for? Yeah. If you can sell million dollar townhomes and squeeze 18 or 24 onto an acre. Well, you can pay 60 bucks a foot. You can only get three or four units to the acre and you're selling for 270,000. Well, you can pay 35 grand an acre. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's basically if you had an Excel model and you left the land price blank and you just said, I can get this many units on the acre and I can either sell them or rent them for this much and I need to return this amount of capital to my investors, it should fill in the blank of like, this is what the land is worth. 100 percent it's about five variables and that is the price but what about the people that own land that are like well i just want a thousand dollars a foot i'm like well you're going to be waiting for a long happy to work on it with you but management of expectations it's huge yeah my kids might be working on this (laughs) (laughs) okay i again i going back to the you're just i always am jealous of the position you're in because you have you have 50, just what's on your website alone, you have 50 plus of the best developers, not only in Texas, but in the United States as clients. And so you're just at the center of like, you know, the forefront of development. And you're just kind of, I'm not saying a fly on the wall, you're a very handsome young man, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, but you are a fly on the wall in these rooms. What are characteristics of like that you can see over time that make some developers better than other developers? We don't have to call out names. Yeah, no. Um, generally speaking, it's just people people you can trust, people that are can, you know, it's it goes basics of just good people in life. Yeah, you know, they're going to do what they say they're going to do. They're going to work hard. They're going to be transparent. Um, that's always 
the high road, you know, I think we've all been training that, but the high road is always the best road. Right. And, you know, you, you also have to have a grace about maybe losing a deal. And, you know, we're, we're very lucky in, in, in the city that developers don't buy against developers. They all support each other. It's a, it's a very small community. Uh, we all know each other very well. Yep. And anything, you know, a zoning case over here works for them. Well, that's probably going to help something over here or, yeah. You know, if I can't get to that price because they were creative and maybe thought of something else or willing to take a different risk than I was willing to take, well, you know, that, that's their program, not mine, but I, I fully support them. I, I just got to go beat them on the next deal. Yep. So I think that's a very good mentality, and it's a, um, it's why the developers here are, are very successful too. Yeah. It's because they are they're transparent. They're you know, as open book as you, as you can be, but uh, they're not there to waste anyone's time. Yep. Going back kind of to the urban setting, uh, have you, are you starting to experience at all any developers that are really starting? I know in Austin, you can now go develop a skyscraper with no parking. I know it's a huge issue um, in Texas. It's like the number one thing people are saying we're not going to need 10 years from now, yet it's the number one reason that most deals are killed. So to paint a picture as a developer, you either have to own enough land to provide surface parking, which is very expensive to buy the land and it doesn't work, or you have to build a garage on a much smaller piece of land, which is very expensive. And I would say, especially at this point of the cycle, 90% of the deals that we don't even look at anymore is because we can figure out immediately, like there's no way we can park it. Um, I guess my question is, uh, has that conversation entered DFW yet of like, when will we not need to park stuff? Not r really. Yeah. I mean, it to a degree. So, so some of the multifamily deals we're working on, um, you know, trying to get down up in legacy West, which is, you know, West Plano. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of the city ordinances have a minimum parking requirement and a maximum actually they really don't have maximum, but it's a minimum. And, you know, for some of these high density resi, high density commercial nodes, they, you know, the developers saying, look, I need less parking. So I, but I still have to go in and get a variance or a zoning change yep. for less parking. They're telling me I need to get two and a half per thousand, but I just built a, you know, big, nice project in Denver and Chicago and wherever else. And we're seeing that we've got too much parking. Right. And it's at 1.9. We'd really like to build 1.25 or even less which is less impactful. It goes completely against what, you know, cities say on multifamily, bringing more and more traffic and more cars to the road and all the other excuses that we know aren't yep. really viable. Um, but it, we are, we're seeing that as a trend there, but on the office side, yeah, and we're still trying to figure that out. Cause yep. a couple of years back, it was all just big parking. We need five per thousand, six per thousand, you know, let's say more call center, driven but it was just a almost a trend in the market and you gotta look at some of those parking lots or garages and it, it's just a lot of wasted capital yep and i would imagine at least well i know from the developer community i talked to people are starting to design projects in a way that's like we could take this parking out and turn it into a usable space Correct. or develop another building on it or yep. something i'm seeing the same the, th the one thing i wrote down that i think has been on our last two or three phone calls um of something that you've been working on or something that I read is this really quickly um, building trend of single family rentals. Yes. Like ownership is, is not as hot as it is to rent a single family home. Uh, when did that kind of start and like how hot is that trend? We, uh, we first saw it in 2012 uh, on a deal up in McKinney. And I thought it was one of the best business models I'd, I'd seen. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, Two different business models I liked a lot at the time. One was a group called Greenbrick. They're buying basically a majority share of some home building companies, more private yeah. companies, but basically infusing them with a bunch of cash. But they they can go develop land and then either use their builders or not, depending on the market. But I thought it was a very creative way of approaching you know, development. And then um, a group called Next Metro out of out of uh, Arizona, they were the first ones to come to this market with this concept and. Um, it's been received. They worked really hard on getting the cities to understand it because it doesn't fit with any of the zoning classes and it, you know, they, they, they did a good job of it. Yeah. Uh, now it's, it's probably the hottest topic 
Wow. Um, especially, you know, ULI, even yesterday, that's what we were talking about. And I sat on a panel for ULI about a month and a half or two ago. And that was the, that was the topic. Yep. So pretty familiar with it. Um, it's interesting, too, seeing groups like Toll Brothers and Lennar and a couple of these other you know, publicly traded companies adding this potentially to their portfolio. You right. know, they're, they're partnering with you know, BB Living, um, you know, obviously huge group. Um, they're all very good at what they do. But to see them come out of their ordinary, I'd say what we've traditionally seen them build and do to, to, this, to this model, I think it's undoubtedly it's got legs. I think it's important. I think it, it does. It's a new classification of, of housing. Um, it allows basically for a, it's you know the, the building in these pods are you know eight to twelve units to the acre depending on which group you're talking about. Some are single plied lots and just really call it clusters. Mm-hmm. And then Next Metro does a ten to eighteen acre single plat for the entire for the entire deal. And it's uh, basically like almost like a vertical or a horizontal multifamily. Yep. Uh, for lack of better terms, it's not a multi-project, but the way it operates and functions is very similar. Can they pay more for land than single family for sale? Yes, but that comes down to density. Yeah. I mean, once again, it's a density. Um, it's a, a density question and in, in, in math problem. Yep. Um, how do you get most of your information? I know you read a bunch. Or well, you just always like again. I, I, you are very, and maybe the answer is you're just in the market and you're talking to a lot of people. But just like, how do you kind of stay up to date and make sure that you're comfortable knowing what you need to know? Yeah, majority of it is yeah, just staying in the market, meeting with people, talking through concepts. You know, going to you know not call it conventions, but the ULI actually really starting enjoying. Yeah. Um, I think you just got to get on the right panels, the right discussion boards. I need to get more involved in that. Yeah, and, and I do suggest it for everybody because it, I mean, it's a worldwide organization just of developer cities, planners. What are you seeing? How do we how do we fix this? What's what's the future going to look like? You know, what do we need to be planning for? Um, and it's just really just all about trends, and it, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, but you know that, and then the news. You know, I'm subscribe to a lot of the Dallas Business Journal or the, the business journals you know, around the country. I think it's uh, gives you an interesting perspective. Like I've got the San Francisco one just to kind of get a judge for what's going on, on the West Coast. Yeah. You know, especially with all the corporate relocations that you're hearing about, like to get a perspective from them or, or you hear rumblings maybe two months out here and then all of a sudden an article comes out here in Houston or somewhere else that mm-hmm. you know, this big company – they announced a, another relocation. They're like, oh, I read about six months ago in San Francisco how they were telling everyone they weren't moving. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it, just reading the news and you know, just knowing who's out there moving and shaking. If you see a group you haven't met before, reach out to them yep. um, and get to know them, see how how their business model might might be a little different than, than the, the other guy that you met with kind of doing the same thing. Do you have like a, a subscription to all the business journals or do you have to do one, each one individually? You do each one individually. Gotcha. Um, and you just kind of pick your cities. So, yeah. And it's, yeah, to me, it's a, it's a cheap way of getting a, not a global, but a, a national perspective. Pick the, pick the hotspots. That's kind of what I did. It was yep. where are the places with the most growth, with the most activity. Um, you know, there are only, you know, four or five cities that probably, I don't want to say worth tracking, but. They give you a good glimpse into East Coast, West Coast, Central. Yep. And, and they're great at it. You can just kind of read through the, the top line, and if you don't like it, you delete it. But Move on. Yeah, move on. Um, one of the, the biggest things I, I listened to the other day, the Empire State Building was built in 18 months. Whoa. Doesn't that blow your mind? Yes. Okay, so this is like, I can't really remember. I think it's early 1900s. It was built in 18 months. Now when we think about building the Empire State Building, you, you, you budget like seven years and three of them are probably just to get the permit. Yeah. Um, and what it was talking about, which I found was really fascinating was that um, when you're doing something for the first time, like building a skyscraper, you're kind of in this mentality of doing things for the first time. So you're just kind of innovating and that creates a, an essence of speed. There's not all these pre 
determined mm-hmm. notions of how things should be. And then experts are weighing in. And then this is when, and we've just gotten to this world where things take a long time. And um, I think if you talk to most developers and they said like, what is one thing that they would work on to fast track time? It, it's how to get these things going through the cities quicker. Um Maybe my question to put you on the spot would be like, if you could give advice to the city on ways that they could really kind of speed things up, because back to your point, we're going to be 160,000 units behind. A lot of that's just because we literally don't have the hours in the day to make it happen. Correct. Um, I know we have projects that have been at the city for a year plus that we still can't get going. And I'm sitting here going, well, the Empire State Building was built in 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh if somebody from a city was listening from somebody that's again, a fly on the wall in a lot of these developments, like what is like one thing you hope to see in your lifetime change or a couple things? Yeah. That's, uh, one thing I would say, like, like what you did here in the river district, yep. it's uh, to the city and also what you know has happened in called West Dallas, Trinity Groves down to Bishop arts, do some more, you know, block zoning where, this entire area, anything that fits within these codes, basically you can come in, pull a permit within 30, 60 days, and you can go you can go build it. Right. Um, I think that's a great way, and it's a, and it takes a lot of work and time to to go figure out, but it does now give everyone a lot more comfort of, well, oh, this property is currently zoned industrial. It shouldn't be industrial, but I've got to go through this long, laborious process of of, of a rezone. Yep. And everyone knows that it shouldn't be this way yep. or vice versa. Um, I think that's one way that they can help fast track a lot of the small submittals. Uh, also, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, can you get any third parties involved to help you process this? Because really it's, it's when it's super inefficient, those are tax dollars. They're delaying and pushing out. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, some of these time frames have probably helped us not to overbuild. And I think it's just a, a byproduct of people being busy again. Yeah. Um, which is, which is probably good. Yep. But my biggest thing just, yeah, work with, you know, developers have more, maybe more meetings with the most active developers, uh, hire some folks that, that really get in and they, they focus on fixing the problems versus trying to fix the problems at council or fix the problems at PNZ and get more staffers that are trying to get involved earlier. You know, and our, our meeting with developers being proactive about, you know, what are you seeing? What are the things that are within the book that should be changed? And that just because they're 50 years old and now things have changed this way, that they shouldn't be here any longer. Yep. Um, yeah, Jason, and I've just been talking a lot. Like, I don't think people, if you ask, like, what are some government regulated industries? People don't really think of real, real estate development as necessarily following falling under, but you could say it's probably one of the most government regulated things that there is. Um, the second part is like, you know, this I'm drinking a can of uh, energy drink. When these people probably were starting this, they went and asked the market. Maybe they did or they, they had a test base of consumers like, what do you want? And they built this product. They got a lot of input from it. The market said, this is what we could want. And then they innovated on that over time. What's really interesting about development, especially in the urban sector, is the market could tell you, like, we want more apartments or we want much smaller units with no yard and we want them, you know, two stories and priced under 300,000. In development, you could go talk to what people want. You could go get all the information but then you're there's a second layer where it's then go ask the neighborhood, the city, people that, in my opinion, not in a, a negative way, they're not trained on it, are not as educated on development and density and how cities grow. Yep. Go get their uh, blessing. Then you can go. And then what ends up really coming out of it is either a lot of back and forth kind of nonsense and fighting a lot of distrust and often a product that's way more expensive to build that is not what the market said they want, but what every, when you're trying to get 500 people to agree on one thing, like what kind of came out of that. And it goes back to why these things are are taking so long. So as a developer, you don't really just get to ask your customer what they want and do it. You ask your customer and then this whole other group. And um, that just comes down to to the typical voting. Yeah. You want your voters 
to like sure. your, your decisions. And you could have a, a city council member that agrees to something and then your project gets delayed a couple months and a new city council member gets elected oh, and everything you had worked on for two or three years could, could go out. And so there's, I just think the level of risk that continues to infuse itself into development really at the end of the day, unless there's a more systematic way of pro- approach that cities take on things, which I think can be solved through some bit of technology, it's going to lead to more expensive product that isn't exactly what the consumers are asking for, but what the constituents that have been there 50 plus years have said they wanted. And I think we can agree on one thing is like people don't want change. Most mm-hmm. people will resort to no change before even pontificating yes, on change. And so sure. um, I'll just say this. We are not going to grow on the backs of single family homes. It's, no. it's impossible. It is. Um, and that is not multifamily has become like multifamily and developer, like two of the worst words that <laughs> you, you could can ever tell use. <laughs> but it, it, I also I try to always remind cities too, and some are more open than others. Of look at the tax base, like look at the commitment, look at the financial commitment from the developer to this project. You know, it's just like how gas stations and storage and multifamily they carry a negative connotation, and a lot of that's you know, re- residual from, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, how things were built and managed and operated. And now you look at them and unfortunately they're in the core parts of our city. And they're like resorts. Yeah. A lot of them are. I know. Yeah. And the new ones are now all just, they're, they're super nice. I, yeah. I challenge anyone to go, go walk through it and you go, man, this is a whole different thought of multifamily or storage. I mean, look at these storage units that are going up. They look like office buildings right. and they've got glass on the outside. They're all brick. Of course, I always got the big logo and signage, which I yeah. hate, but yeah, I get that too. That's yeah. that's down to the city there on, on sign codes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, you see all of that. And I mean, the, the world has really innovated itself and pushed itself. And, and, and I do give credit to the cities also for pushing yep. you know, developers to create this higher quality. But there does become a point in time where it just yeah it's almost ludicrous every extra opinion is not adding value to the you decision. go in each time and each city planner has a different vision right and you go well i, I changed it for them well they're not here this week yeah okay let me go spend another ten thousand dollars and re-update and come back in next week and it's a whole different whole different game switching subjects what is the best advice somebody has given you well that's um yeah, always work hard, always tell the truth, always, you know, be loyal. Yeah. And, you know, be honest. Yeah. You know, your, your reputation is everything. Yeah. And once you squander it once, then it's really hard to recover from. And yeah. that, that's all we all have ultimately at the end of the day when, you know, when we go to the grave is what's your reputation, what we're known for. And, yeah. you know, and just, just be a good person. A lifetime to build and a second to uh, destroy. destroy it. Yeah. Um, do you have any uh, specific mentors that have had a huge impact on you uh, in your life? Yeah, I'd say obviously you know, my, my dad and yeah. David would say the same for him. Um, you know, the the Perot family, they've done a lot for us, just in lots of different facilities. So, yeah. you know, Jack Matthews has been a great one. I mean, gosh, the, the list really goes on and on. But it's awesome. Um, we've been blessed with a lot of great mentors, and every day we, we wake up, hoping to be able to live up to the kind of, yeah. kind of their standards yep. and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying our best. You know, you do know everybody. Well, which, which, that's part of our job. That is, and you do a great job of it. Uh, okay. My final question that I ask everybody you can think on it for a second is what is your favorite interview question when you're interviewing somebody? I've got a couple. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite ones, do you make your bed in the morning? Oh, okay. Yeah, did you did you get up and make your bed this morning? Okay. And uh, 98% of people say no. I would fall in that camp. Well, at a, tell me why that's... Like at, at our house, my wife and I, and whoever gets up last has to make the bed. Okay. Um, I guess growing up, had we had to make... I always had to make my bed. And then I read an article a long time back was... You know, majority of your CEOs, they, they, they go on and, and, and accomplish something early in the morning. 
And one of the first things you can accomplish is making your bed. At that point, you've you've kind of refreshed your day. You're on schedule. When you get home, it's it's clean and done, and, um, and it's simple to do. And we all should be doing it because yeah. there's nothing better than getting into a bed that is made. Is made, uh, especially young guys and girls that just out of college. They're probably used to not making it, uh, <laughs> and they continue not making it. And I think there's a, just a lot to it. I think it's a respect for your own room. I think there's a respect for yourself. I think there's a comfort to it. Um, I don't know, in college, I always made my bed. We always had the cleanest house. We always, you know, on the weekends, I'd, I'd have my roommates and I would be in there scrubbing everything, keeping it clean. <laughs> and to, But when people when we have people over, they would have you know, a big party, and people knew that that's how we were, and so they would clean up too. Yeah. And it just continued just to propel itself. It starts, yeah, it starts with kind of your culture around it, I guess. Correct. And you call somebody, hey, don't put that beer can there. <laughs> Throw that in the trash can. It's like right there in front you of You would have hated me in college. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever washed my seat sheets one time my freshman year, uh, that's which disgusting. is so disgusting to admit, but what the heck. Once a week for sure. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting. Those people kind of yeah on the back of their heels and and are most people like yeah no they're like, mm, no no they're like why like why would I do that yeah it's like well you're you're accomplishing something like off the bat you're out the door you come back and your room looks a lot better I mean just uh, I'm I'm big on that yep um I'm trying to think what else. What? And always, you know, what, what's your, what do you do in your free time? Yeah. Uh, that to me, we've always hired more just kind of on the person who they are. Yeah. Uh, than really what your grades were and yada, yeah. yada, yada. It's just, you know, who, who are you? Who are do you, you even person? look at what their grades were? Uh, out of curiosity. But, but does it play yeah. a huge decision? No, because everyone's grades are a lot higher than mine. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one I heard the other day from, from Brandon that was on the, the podcast he he's like the best salesman i've ever met and he's he's awesome um and he said that his interview question is if you were to get on an airplane and you were put in the middle seat what would you tell the people on either side in order to get their seat so you had to either sit in the aisle or the window how would you have that conversation with the people to to get into their seat it's a good question. Oh, is that for me? No, okay. no. I'm just telling. I'm just adding one to your repertoire. Um, you don't by, want. You by don't the want time to people them. come up from for air after realizing they don't make their bed, then you could hit them without. Yeah, one. they'd be like, "This guy's crazy," and it's over. <laughs> um, well, man, I really appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. As always, it's uh, it's insightful, and I look forward to working with you for many more years to come. Yes, sir. Thank you. It's fun. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Appreciate Thanks. it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.